Hello, and welcome back to Talking Talmud. I'm Ann Gordon, here with my friend and chavruta, Yerdena Azband. Our daf of the day, Masachat Psachim, daf Pechet, page 88. Our daf opens, uh, it's got a line on the previous daf, Ula Amar, that's the part that I care about from the previous daf. Ula says that Bnei Israel basically were exiled to Babylonia in order to be, enable them to eat Tamarim, now we're on our daf, Tamarim via Skuba Torah. That they could eat the dates, the idea being that there are plenty of dates that grow in Babylonia, and because they could eat dates, and dates are considered to be, uh, this is kind of backstory, it literally just says tamarim, but the dates themselves are supposed to give them strength, and then once they have strength from the dates, they should be able to learn Torah that much more so, so that they, that's why they're exiled to Babylonia specifically, so that they could eat dates via scuba Torah, and they would, you know, immerse themselves in Torah. Ula ikla lafumpadita, kervule tirina de tamre, amarhu kama kihani bazuza. So Ula went to Tontpompadita, right? There's a city where there's a big yeshiva, and they brought him a basket, that's a tirina, of dates. And he said to them, How many baskets of days like of dates like these can you get for, for one zoos? Meaning it was a basket of apparently of considerable size. Uh, the dates were of considerable size. Amrule, tlat bezuza. You get three for one zuz, which is not a tremendous amount of money. Amar, malot sana de dufsha bezuza bavle lo aske baoraita. He says, how can it be that you can fill up a basket with dates, right? And the Babylonians here, the Jewish Babylonians, are not more, even more involved in the Torah study. Like, how can it be that they're not learning even more extensive Torah? Because the assumption being that if the food, the cost of food is so low, then they should not have to work so much to earn so much money to be able to pay for the food. So then they should have a lot of free time in which they should be engaged in Torah study, right? Meaning, which is a very um, laudable and reasonable, I don't know if it's really reasonable, but it's a very nice way to think that people should be spending their time. Again, assuming that because of food is uh, not so costly that they actually have the time to to explore more Torah, frankly, or to explore anything. But then the Gemara takes an interesting twist. The story takes an interesting twist. Balelia Tsiaruhu. He ends up with a stomachache. Um, he's got, you know, food issues from, presumably from having eaten these dates. Amar, Malot Sana Sama Demota Bazuza Bibavel. He says it takes you know, you fill up a basket of these poisonous uh, demota, the um, fatal, lethal um, dates for one zoos. And how wonderful that despite the fact that they're eating poison all the time, they nonetheless manage to engage in Torah. So there's something very, um, you know, turn the same story on its head of the exact same amount of dates and the exact same cost. But if they are uh, to be enjoyed, then you could say, well, what else are you doing with your time? And if they cause you suffering, then he says, well, you know, in that case, how laudable is it that they study Torah at all in any, in, in any amount? Um, which I just, I just like this story. I think that it, it is reminiscent to me of this idea, right? There's a, I guess it's a joke that, um, you know, that Gan Eden, you know, after 120 years, Gan Eden is basically a Gemara on a stender. And that's either, you know, heaven or hell, depending on your take of what that learning is. And I feel like there's something to be said about that here, that the 
what your perspective is, you know, can shift dramatically of whether you're going to give someone credit or blame for the exact same uh, quantity or whatever of activity, in this case, Torah study. Um, okay, so that's that's my piece of Agatha. I know that, Yardina, you've got more coming. I just want to just touch on the halacha that we did already talk about, I guess, yesterday, uh, which is very specifically in the context of who can bring a carbon Pesach on behalf of somebody else, right? Yesterday we talked about, um, the daf talked about how uh, a woman, um, you know, can either have her Korban Pesach be under her husband's Korban Pesach or under certain circumstances under her father's Korban Pesach. And of course, what we didn't really address is, you know, how can it be that somebody's slaughtering on behalf of somebody else? You know, how can somebody register her without her own involvement, so to speak. So in this case, um, further down on the daf, we're on Amad Aleph, we've got the case where, you know, one person, you know, brings and slaughters the Korban Pesach, and that's going to be on behalf of um, minor children, right? People who are not, who have not yet reached the age of majority, and on behalf of Avadim or Shvachot, right? Uh, Canaanite slaves or maidservants. And in those cases, you don't really have to worry about consent because, None of these people is considered to have consent, right? A minor doesn't isn't hasn't reached the age of consent um, in terms of a legal legal authority to be able to consent, and a slave doesn't have consent either. Uh, but then that same Breita, no, uh, yeah, Breita, that same Breita says that a person cannot swear the korban pesach on behalf of an adult son or daughter because again they have to be participate participating in it, um, and. And likewise, in this case, um, you can't slaughter on behalf of uh, an Evid Ivri or Shifrat Ivri, yeah? meaning uh, the Canaanite slave, yes, but an indentured servant, which is basically the status of a Hebrew slave, a Jewish slave, um, that person you can't slaughter on behalf of me. He's got to participate in his own Korban Pesach. And likewise, on behalf of his wife, which is, of course, the case from the mission that we spoke about yesterday, he can't do it unless he's got consent, meaning they have their own identity in terms of the legality of what they're allowed to do or what they are obligated to do. And, and nobody can come and do it on their behalf without their own participation. And then we have, I'll just read this a little bit inside and turn it over to you, your data. Tanya Idach, we have another breita. Lo yishchot adam, lo al yidei b'no u'bito ha'gdolim, v'lo al yidei avdo v'shifchato ha'ivrim, v'al yad ishto ele mida'atan. So it repeats the same point that the adult children and the uh, uh, Jewish Evid Ivri or Shifrat Ivriya and also the wife, all of those cases need consent. Uh, so again, it repeats those cases. It's in a different order, basically. This same Breita seems to include the same content as the first one. But it also gives us this rule. That any of them who, who in fact, did their own shechita or their own korban pesach and also their master, whether that means their father or their owner, depending, did the shechita on their behalf, they can only go with his korban pesach and not with their own because, again, they are not of the status to be able to have their own da'at, really, their own uh, consent, their own involvement, because they are, I guess they don't have enough of their own identity um, in this legal kind of way. And then, 
except for the case of the wife. Again, that was our original case, who is able to say to the husband and say, I'm not going to, you know, I'm not going to be supported by you. I'm not going to give you my Masaya there. This is like a marriage contract. We'll come to the details of what they each owe each other. Um, I guess when he gets a Kiddushin, if not before then. And, but because of that, because she has the agency to be able to say, you know, I'm not participating in this equation. So then she is also able to retain her ability to check her own Korban Pesach, even in the event that he shechted one on her behalf, which I feel like is a really important uh, sub, you know, subtopic or footnote to the, to the Mishnah from yesterday that says that, you know, she's between her father's Korban and her, and her husband's Korban, she's really under her husband, except for if it's really done back in her childhood home. And here we've got a new case, which is she could also be under her own Korban, which is an important, I think it's an important caveat. Yeah, I, you know, this whole thing that there seems to be this emphasis on the wife. Uh, we saw that with the bride, right, that she could sort of decide if she wants to be with her father for the first year. And again, also with the wife that she really could decide that she wanted to be with a different group. And I, I'm not sure, is there any other area in Halacha where we see such agency? And I wonder if that's because they're really a full participant in the Korban Pesach. It's a good question. It's a good question. I, I think, first of all, I think the next staff is actually going to talk about um, how things are a little bit different when a woman brings a Korban Pesach, which I think is going to be interesting for us. I, I don't know about other cases where agency would be relevant. I'm not sure that I know enough yet about who brings what Korban, you know, in general. What would happen if this were not the Korban Pesach, but just a shlamim for a holiday in general? Who, you know, what if somebody else in the household, other than the head of household, brought? I, I'm not sure. Right. So I, that's just something that I'm curious about. And I guess we'll leave it as a, as a question as we continue to unpack the Korban Pesach. And maybe we'll see that there's even more uh, sort of an emphasis on the woman's unique ability to sort of control who she does or does not have Korban Pesach with and share it with. Um, I wanted to jump ahead uh, to something uh, on the bottom of Amud Bet, right before the Mishnah, um, that's in this discussion again of this interesting case of this slave who, you know, is half free and half owned. And how exactly does does this work? And they share here uh, an interesting, so so they had quoted a brisa, and they're basically going to say, you know, Khan Kamishna Rishona, right, that the ruling here in the brisa is with an earlier teaching of Beit Hillel, right, Khan Mishnah Achrona, and the other ruling here with our Mishnah is with their latter teaching. And so what is it that they're talking about here? It's not. We learned in a Mishnah. Misha Chatzio Evid Vachatzio Ben Chorin. Let's say we have somebody who's half a slave and half free. So Beit Hillel's solution for this is, is that the person works one day for his master and one day for himself. So in other words, maybe you'd have a schedule Sunday, Tuesday, Thursday is you're a slave and Monday, Wednesday, Friday, you're not a slave, right? Something like that. And then Beit Shammai comes along and Beit Shammai says the following, right? Beit Shammai Omrim, Tikk, right? You, you solved it for his master. In other words, okay, that makes sense. The master gets to basically benefit from having him half of the time. But you didn't solve anything for the slave, right? What didn't you solve for him? 
he's not able to marry slave woman, right? Because he's not a full slave. Because half of him is free. He's also not allowed to marry a free woman. Because half of him is a slave. So is he going to remain sort of idle, basically, right? And not marry at all. Right? And isn't it true that the world was only created basically to fulfill the commandment of having children, right? And so, and how do they do this? They basically uh, quote a series of psukim here. Well, this is from Yeshayahu, Perak Memhei Pasugirchet, right? Where it says, lo tohu right? God didn't create the world to be tohu, to be void. But again, that should obviously remind you of, you know, tohu vavohu that we have in Bereshit. Let Yitzra, right? He formed, God formed it for it to be inhabited. Ella mipenei tikkun olam, right? And the reason for that is, is for the sort of the betterment of society, you know, so the, so for tikkun olam, for the betterment of society, kofin etrabo osin oto ben chorin. We have to force his master and we have to make him actually a free man. Because tev star al damav, and we compensate the master for his loss, Right. And the slave basically has to write him or give him, a, you know, that he's going to pay him the value of half his value. When Bedhol heard this reasoning, they reversed themselves. So, a couple of things I want to comment about this. First, is it's an interesting case here because I think often we think of Bedhol as sort of always being the more um, tolerant or the one that's kinder. And Bedhol is always like, you know, very legal. And here it's interesting to see that it's sort of like Beit Hillel that came up with sort of the legal answer, right? He'll work half the time and be for himself half the time. And it's Beit Shammai who really, in a way, sort of has, let's say, the nicer um, approach or the kinder approach. But I think it's still very consistent with who Beit Shammai is because it's really about fulfilling another law, right? Like, in other words, according to Beit Shammai, this is just not the way of the world. The world is meant that, you know, people, you know, are very much going to want to get married, to have children, to sort of set up that family type of unit. And we have to enable the slave to be able to do that. And we can't prevent him from doing this because he's in this in-between state and couldn't marry a slave or couldn't marry, um, you know, free woman. But the other thing I want you to pay attention to here is this term of olam, rather for the betterment of, you know, or for fixing the world. And tikkun olam is really a phrase that I think today gets very much thrown around. It usually has a lot of like social justice sort of connotations to it. Um, this should be a phrase that we pay attention to as we do Dafyomi, because what I think we're actually going to see, I've actually always wanted to give a share on like the concept of tikkun olam in the Talmud, is that really tikkun olam is invoked when there is a halakha that doesn't seem to be working, like it causes pain or it causes some type of situation that's just not tenable. And therefore, the rabbis come in and they say like, okay, we need to fix it in a way. And we're going to see some other examples of this, particularly with Rav Gamliel I, who we're actually going to talk about in the next story that I want to do. He does this a couple of times in the Gemara. But basically, Beit Shama here invokes the concept of tikkun olam. And again, it's a Talmudic understanding of tikkun olam not the social justice one, although one could say this is an issue of justice, right? Like he's not being treated well. And the solution basically is, Kofina Rabbo, we basically make the owner give him up and say, 
This is not a way that anybody deserves to live. And even though the halakha allows for this in-between state of a person being half slave, half free, kofina rabo, we're not going to allow it for the sake of tikkun olam because every person, it's an issue of human dignity. This person is entitled to really have a family and to marry if they wanted to marry. And this, you know, Beit Hillel's solution just really doesn't allow for that. So I think there's really a lot here. It's, it's sort of a different role of Beit Hillel and Beit Shammai, one that I think we're not typical of seeing. And the second is, you know, I think this is the first time that we've seen the concept of tikkun olam in our study of Talmud. And again, I really want us to pay attention to this. Um, thank you for that, Yodin. I feel like the tikkun olam discussion gets very loaded um, because I feel like, oh, <clears throat> I'm specifically speaking about how it came to be uh, employed in the social justice meaning of it. And I agree with you that it may in fact be really about justice in, in the Talmud, but um, it's kind of been, you know, politicized in terms of who lays claim to Judaism being about tikkun olam. And I think it's really important to set, as you've said, but to, to set that aside as we come to this stuff. And I, I, you know, look forward to tracing this term through with you. Right. And I think it's just interesting uh, to note that like it really when you read it on this page, it really has a very different connotation. Um, the other thing I want to point out is just on Ahmed Bet. I don't think I'm going to read both of them through, but there's these two stories about Rebbe Gamliel um, with this king, with this sort of this anonymous king and queen. So the first one is, is that, um, you know, there's a king and queen who basically uh, instruct their, you know, slaves to go out and shech the Korban Pesach. And they shech the two, right, a kid and a lamb. And then they come to the king and say, okay, well, which one do you want? And he says, well, ask the queen. And the queen says, well, ask Rebbe Gamliel. And then, you know, Reverend Gamliel basically says to them, well, it doesn't make a difference. You're not particular about which one it is. So just eat the first one that they actually, you know, uh, just eat the first one that was shechted. But for ordinary people, right, you wouldn't eat the first or the second and you actually would eat neither of them. And again, this is referring back to, uh, you know, what do you do if your slave shechted both animals and making the distinction that it is different for a king and the queen, and that the Mishnah is really talking about the, ca the case of the king and the queen. Um, and then it has a second story, again, with Rav Gamliel and this anonymous king and queen. Um, and this has to do with that they found a lizard, right, a sheretz, that if it was dead would make everything tummy, right? One of the eight scene that we've talked about before. And the king, you know, the, the servants go to the king, they were ready to say everything was tummy. So first of all, I just like this because it's interesting to see that the servants had some sense of halakha and they understood that they had a real problem in the kitchen. So they go to the king. The king again says, no, go to the queen. And then the queen says, no, go to Rav Gamliel. And Rav Gamliel comes up with this great solution where he basically was like, well, see if you can get it to move. Now, remember, because if it really was a dead chair, it's nobody was going to want to touch it. So they pour cold water on it. The lizard gets up and walks out. And so, you know, right? Rav Gamliel says the whole meal was actually tahor. Right. So we see that the king was dependent on the queen, the name Saint Malkat's Gamliel. And it seems that and we see that the queen is dependent on Rabbi Gamliel. Gamliel. And the whole meal was dependent on Rabbi Gamliel. So, you know, just in terms of a historical context, so this is actually Rabbi Gamliel the first, right? The Rabbi Gamliel the second, who we have spent much more time talking about, 
lives after the destruction of the Beit HaMikdash. So this has to be the first Rabban Gamliel, who's actually the grandson of Hillel, the Hillel that we just talked about before also. Um, and, you know, the big question here is, uh, is, you know, who is the king here? So most commentators say that the king here was probably Agrippus. Um, and he really was sort of considered to be, uh, who, so first of all, he was one of sort of the last kings of, you know, Judea, like one of these Roman, you know, kings who were put up by Rome. Um, and um, he's uh, uh, the second to last one, I would say, is the first Agrippas, right? Then there was Agrippa II, a Herod Agrippa II. Um, and he's the grandson of Herod the Great. Um, and he was really known to actually be like, uh, like a good king. Um, and so I think we see that here you know, from this particular story. So it's just always, whenever have, we have these stories where Chazal sort of seems to interact with these kings, um, it's always interesting. Uh, it, they're always interesting to see. Um, so I just thought this was a great little piece of history um, that we had embedded in the daf here. I like seeing just how from, so to speak, right, uh, the king and the queen are here in terms of, you know, checking for the, the final word, the authority of what's supposed to be done. Oh, well, call in Rabbi Gamliel, he'll know. Um, which, you know, he does, he does know. But it's still, there's something very um, pleasing, I suppose, about the idea of Rabbi Gamliel in this role of advisor to the king and the queen. And, you know, in a in a way that the Gemara is proud to represent. Right. You know? The other really famous story about him is um, that we will get to uh, later, and I'm not remembering where it is, is there's a story about how on Sukkot, um, you know, for Hakel, they take out the Torah and Agrippus reads it. And when he gets to the part in Zavarim where you read, where it says you shouldn't have a foreigner over you as the king, he starts to cry. And then the Chachamim comes to him and they say, don't fear, you're actually like our brother, you're our brother. So I think that's actually, it's a very beautiful story. Um, I don't remember exactly where it is in the Gemara, <laughs> but um, we'll, we'll get to it at some point. Um, so he really, you know, so again, it's interesting. He's anonymous here, um, but just know that that's probably the king that it's referring to here. Yeah. Oh, yeah, it makes sense. And I think that that story, the second story, um, you know, highlights that. And I look forward to getting there as well. Well, that's our DAP discussion for the day. Rank us, review us on all major podcasts. Thank you to Reverend Michelle Farber for hosting us on the Hundred website. Let us know what you thought about this stuff and some of its good little stories on Halakha on our Talking Talmud Facebook page. And until tomorrow, go and learn.